right, here we are. Here we are, episode 47. Welcome back. Welcome back. It is 47, right? It's 47? Yeah, it's 47, man. You have anything to say about that? Um, it back in our prime. Oh, God. <laughs> I know. You love it. I know you do. I know there's some listeners out there who love it too. Yeah. So, yeah. prime. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I have so much to say about that, but we have we have an exciting episode that we need to get to. So I'm well, here's a gonna... here's an interesting aside. I'll just oh, say okay. this. So um, my daughter had a uh, she she called it STEM girl summer. So she <laughs> she uh, was it, she took two classes a summer, and she's a, uh, a a sophomore. Actually, she's just finished up her sophomore year at a co- at college. And so she was like, I'm going to take two classes this summer. And one of them was a computer science class. And mm. one of the final projects was to write a program in which when you put a number in, it would decide, it would de- determine whether the number was prime or not. Okay. And she was like, dad, give me some prime numbers. And I'm like, I'm on it. Uh, I'm, I'm, your gu- I'm your guy. I, so <laughs> you have come to the right place. <laughs> yes. This skill. <laughs> my, one of my superpowers is prime yeah. number generation. Yes, that is right. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, you know, throwing out a whole bunch of them and, you know, yeah. Did you, so you, did you do them in order or did you just skip around? I skipped around. Yeah. Um, right. Good for you. What's the, what's the fun in going in order, right? Well, then, and that was like, then it's easy. It's well, like memorizing just, digits of pi or something. Yeah. Well, yeah, there was, it was interesting to like help her through that programming because it was like all Java based, which was really cool. Um, hmm. But, you know, but. That's that's awesome, and she she did well in the class, and she had never taken a computer science class before, um, so she was lear- learning programming and learning Java, you know, at the same time. So pretty cool, nice, yeah, all right, awesome. But that's not what this episode is about. No, today, right? I was going to say that that it was an excellent story, but now we're going to transition <laughs> into what this episode is about. Yeah, and where this fits in with the last couple episodes, we were discussing as as we just finished up these last few episodes about learning theories, we figured there were some like larger concepts, constructs kind of things that we wanted to discuss that, you know, ap- apply to teaching, apply to science teaching, apply to teacher education and all of that milieu. And we thought that a really good place to start would be talking about bum, 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 PCK. Ah. I, <clears throat> I'm just going to say one thing about this because I have some colleagues who have a rule that if you um, mention this term, you have to put a dollar in a jar, sort of like a swear jar. Wow. So I'm just saying to those people, if they're listening, which they're not, excuse me, that um, I am exempt for the entire episode of this podcast from that rule, because otherwise I will be penniless because we're going to mention that term a fair bit. So, so I'm just putting it out there. Yeah. I I would say, um, it does evoke uh, sort of that kind of visceral reaction to some folks, right? Yeah, I mean, that's sure. sort of, um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we we wanted to talk about it because, you know, I think it's maybe come up a couple places. So I think before we get too far, too far yeah. along, we probably should define it because it's just an acronym right now that we just threw out. It's pedagogical content knowledge, mm-hmm. um, PCK. And this has been around for a long time time i think the the not first john, time not john dewey long no but. not that long <clears throat> not our friend john dewey long uh but friend um from the, the show john dewey um but it has been a, around since like the 80s and 
And if you went through a teacher education program in the last, I don't know, 20 or so years, 40, 40 years, you probably went through a program that was designed from a PCK standpoint, at least that's the way I see the world, you know, that for good or for bad, right. That, you know, they've, uh, the PCK just made sense to a lot of people and they're like, okay, this, this is it. And um, so it was first introduced by Ali Shulman back in 1986. And we had actually had to do some digging to find the original article. Cause it's, you know, yeah, it's funny how it doesn't come up in just a search that way. And I, it must be because the term is actually one of three that he uses in the article, but yeah. So, right. So Lee it's, Shulman at Stanford is the, right. is the guy who coins this term. And we'll put a link to it in, in the show notes, but the original article that appeared in was those who understand knowledge, growth and teaching. And, and it's, it's, you know, a short little article. It's like for the impact that it's had on, on teacher education, it, it's like what, maybe five pages long, six pages long. So, yeah. I mean, I know that's, you know, I'm, you know, kind of just looking at the numerics of it, but you would right. think that this was, and it's not even really research-based. It's more of a no, position it's not paper. At all. It's a conceptual piece. It really yeah. is just making an argument. Yeah. It, he's making this argument that what we need to do is to, we, we focus on the practices of teaching and not even practices. He, hmm. he even, he talks about like the mechanics of teaching. That's right. right. He says, That's a better way to describe it. Right. And he says that, you know, we focus so much on the mechanics of teaching that we don't really think about the knowledge base that's required for successful teaching. And that's where he throws out this and he doesn't use the term, you know, he doesn't break it down into all of its varieties as we talk about today. Mm. Um, But he he talks about this, the fact that what teachers need to possess are three different types of knowledge. One, pedagogical content knowledge which means that you have to know your content and how to teach it, right? You now have to, have to know specifically how to teach physics or specifically know mm. how to teach science or specifically know how to teach, you know, mathematics. Um, and then you also need to have uh, subject matter content knowledge, which mm. you need to know physics or you need to know mathematics. And then the last one, and this was a, a, an interesting change from the, the way it's positioned today is curricular knowledge. Mm. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah, I think I mean, I think that one's still around, but it's certainly less emphasized. I mean, right. I think, you know, to put it in a little bit of context, like Shulman was making um, an argument here. He was he's making he was he was creating or arguing for this this new way of thinking about teacher knowledge. And I think the important thing is to understand that what he was trying to say with this PCK thing is that teachers actually understand the things that they're teaching differently than the people who are actually doing the thing. Right. So, so his argument is basically like scientists for in our context, scientists understand science in a particular way, which is the scientific, you know, the disciplinary content knowledge, the, and that is different than the knowledge that you need to teach those things to other people. And I think that's really the core of pedagogical content knowledge and, and why it was proposed and why he made this argument. And part of it was that, um, you know, he, he starts this article with, with this sort of, uh, he doesn't attribute it to anybody. So, but this sort of classic quote, he 
who can does he who cannot teaches, which, you know, was sort of an old saw, right? Especially, you know, in disciplinary circles. So, you know, the sign, if you were in the science program at Penn state and you weren't doing real great and your grades were sort of rocky, they would say, well, why don't you go over to the college of education and teach, right? Cause you're clearly not cut out to be a scientist. So that sort of notion um, and, and he was trying to, at least in part, salvage um, teaching as a profession and say, look, there are things that teachers understand differently and better for the purpose uh, that, that scientists don't understand, at least in the same way for the same purpose. And I think that that concept is um, powerful. And, and I think I I say, I would still say, I generally agree with it. It's one of the tricky things about, um, for example, how we, how we develop standards. If we have a whole bunch of people on the standards committee that are only scientists, that's, that's not necessarily great for, for designing standards for schools because they understand their discipline very well, but they don't necessarily understand how to organize and structure that knowledge for kids to learn it. Yeah. And, and I think from a, um, from the article standpoint, I think when, when they, he starts by saying, okay, look, here are the mechanical things that teachers need to know. And you and I actually had to Google a couple of the terms on here. Cause it's like, what the heck is orthography? Right. right. It's like, what well, it is, from, know, it is from an 1875. Right. Categorization. Right. So you're right. Right. But, um, the, but that's where he starts the article by saying, look, this is the, the mechanics of teaching that, you know, and I, and I, before the show, I, I said that, you know, um, I worked at a school in which teachers uh, were teacher, you know, candidates, their uh, chalkboard skills were tested, right? Like how they could actually write uh, on a chalkboard was something that was assessed. Um, is that important? Sure, it's important. But is it something that we need to hang our hat on in terms of teacher education? I don't know. Um, but um, I think what no, I, I do know. And the answer is no. <clears throat> so I'm just going to put that out there. Right. Right. I'm trying to, you know, you're, probably, the you're trying to be generous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I am trying to be generous and it was someplace I I've worked. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's also something I don't want to throw some people under the bus, you know, cause they, who knows, they might be listening, right? Yeah, it could be. They but could, but yeah. is it a thing that we want to spend time in teacher education on? I'm just going to say, no, I'm going to say no. Yeah. Well, and I would say that this, this article is huge, right? It's like huge from the standpoint that, you know, it has like some like 30,000 citations and the, uh, the other articles that come out just a year or two later are also cited like 20, 30,000 times. So these have a huge impact on, on not only the, you know, field of teacher education, but also, as I said, you know, teacher, you know, schools of education, because, mm-hmm. you know, what they've designed is like, I will say, if you go to, you know, Millersville's program, you know, and you're in secondary education, uh, you're going to take a lot of science classes, and then you're going to take a methods class, a science methods class, and you're going to mm-hmm. take, you know, maybe some, you know, general pedagogy class to get that pedagogical knowledge, right? But then we're really working on developing that PCK, the pedagogical content knowledge by having content specific methods classes. So, you know, you may take a general assessment class, that, you know, the social studies folks would take, the math folks would take, the science folks would take, but then they have these dedicated classes. In fact, there's some fields, some of our fields where they have, they, they don't have those general pedagogical classes, 
they only have pedagogical content. So mm -hmm. they've pulled them out specifically because teaching art is different than teaching other things, teaching music, teaching, you know, and teaching those those future teachers how to teach that content is really critical from from a PCK standpoint. Yeah. And and, uh, you know, what what he's one of the things he's saying, though, in this article is he's looking at the evaluate current evaluation system for teachers. And he lists these seven things that were categories for teachers being uh, evaluated that in a project that he was associated with. And one of the things he he points out is that subject matter knowledge has disappeared from this list. So right. this idea of like, well, what did they do? They not have to know the content they're teaching. Um, so I, you know, I think this, I, this idea about the relationship between what is being taught and teaching. So is, I mean, sort of what he is, I don't know if responding to or, or addressing or how we want to think about it, but one of the things he's talking about is teaching as a general practice. Like I know how to teach, therefore I can teach anything versus, um, I know how to teach is part of being a teacher, but also knowing what I'm teaching actually matters. And again, subtly that knowing what I'm teaching in a way that helps support my teaching practice is, is critically important. So, um, so this idea is, um, is, you know, his attempts to try and characterize uh, what, what that knowledge means. But I think just to take you know, to point this out, because we just finished a, a long series on um, learning theory, this is absolutely grounded in a very um, cognitive point of view, right? C pedagogical content knowledge is a very, um, very uh, cognitive perspective sure. on what it means for teachers to know how to teach. It is, it is some characterization of their knowing. It it does talk about practice sort of, but really it's like how you know these things. Um, so it, so it is grounded in that and, and PCK continues to be grounded in that as its fundamental model. Absolutely. And well, I, I'll say one of the things that, you know, to try to give it some, you know, benefits, let's, let's, uh, oh, you and I, lots of benefits. Yeah, I sure. And I yeah. think the, to look at the beneficial sides of this, I think one of the things is you and I coming at it from the physics perspective, we tend to, you know, in physics, we tend to test the limits by pushing it to the like the the ends of uh, hmm. of a limit to test it. So, would we want a teacher who had lots of content knowledge but no pedagogical knowledge? Right? Would we want hmm. that person, like somebody who was an expert in their field but had no idea how to teach it? Hmm. And would we want to have somebody who knew how to teach stuff but had no content knowledge? I think we would both agree that those are things we don't want. Right? We don't want to have somebody who can teach the stuff. You know, be really an expert in creating a classroom environment in which students are engaged, that, you know, really thoughtful questions are being asked, that, you know, helping them, you know, craft good, you know, explanations and all that, but really devoid of any content knowledge, you know, we wouldn't want that. And we wouldn't want people coming in and just, you know, lecturing to the, you know, or, you know, talking way above the target population that they're, say we have like, you know, someone teaching, you know, fourth grade, and they're talking about quantum mechanics. I think we would both agree that that is not what we want. So what we would want, and this is what, like, these are often uh, represented with a Venn diagram, right? As if like the Venn diagram, ah, it's like magical, right? Like yeah. if we can come up with a really good Venn diagram, then everything is is better, right? And so this yeah. is, there's two overlapping 
circles in which one is pedagogical knowledge, one other was content knowledge, and the overlap of the two is that PCK. And so, and that's where I think that, you know, why I'm saying that the curricular knowledge is not really in that graph. I mean, I think it's assumed in the graph in that image or uh, representation, but it's not something that seems to have, you know, not stuck around as much. I mean, content knowledge or, you know, I guess that's what they're talking about from a curricular knowledge standpoint, but, you know. Well, I think, I mean, if you look at the, the, you know, one of the things that PCK as a concept has spawned, and we can talk about all sorts of different things that it's done, you know, as you say, it's had an amazingly broad and deep impact on the field. It's an industry. It is. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is, is what it's done is it's created, specifically an industry around models, right? So you can look at some of the current models of PCK um, and they do have, you know, like you're joking about a Venn diagram, like they have these incredibly complicated models with all these different concepts and lots of arrows pointing between them or, or, you know, overlapping circles or, you know, concentric circles. I've seen trajectories of changing circles and it's like, come on. It's like, so there's a, so it has, I mean, it has created a cottage industry of models of teacher knowledge um, that are increasingly complex, right? So these days you can really find some, and we'll find some, uh, some examples and put them in the show notes, but um, you know, that, so just to point out, Shulman has no diagrams in this. This is just, he's talking about three different categories of knowledge, but this led to, um, and we're not even talking about the spinoffs, which may, we may have to have a separate episode about that, but just right. within the same PCK. Thing we could just do like, you know, an episode just talking about PCK re-envisioned or PCK right. 2.0 or 3.0 or gosh, yeah. it's, yeah, it, yeah there's it's got, just, it's got a lot of legs. Well, and, and I think that with, with that, it's, it, I think it was a way of describing the teacher. Like, I think from that standpoint, you and I both can get behind that. It's a way of describing the requisite teacher knowledge that to be successful, Right. I think we could both get behind that, at least from a conceptual standpoint that like, okay, teachers need to have content knowledge. They need to know how to teach. Yes. I'm on board with that. We can, I can buy into, but the way I think that it's been, I don't want to say bastardized, but I just said it, I'll say it's right. Is that it's, it's become this um, it's been used for assessment. It's been used for uh, designing teacher education programs. Mm -hmm. It's been, it's been, you know, used in so many ways and it's been, and the, some of the spinoffs have been used as technology integration models for schools, you know, as lesson planning things like where, where are you doing this? Where are you doing this? And it's been so, um, so broadened that is like, it has taken on a life of its own. It's a, it's the Frankenstein monster of models, right? Frank, Frankenstein's monster, right? Right. That's yeah. Yeah, that's what you meant. Now, Frankenstein right. monster, Frankenstein's monster. Right. Because it was his monster. Right. It was. It was. Okay. I think we're, okay. we're in agreement there. Okay, right. perfect. Got, I'm glad we got that sorted out. Yeah, um, the monster wasn't Frankenstein. It was. No. You know, right. He yeah. was the. He was, he the, was the guy. He was the, he was the guy. Yeah. Right. Um, so speaking of Frankenstein's monster, um, what the <laughs> distinction I would make here uh, that I, I'm going to tweak the language that you used a little bit um, because I think. Well, first of all, it's really fascinating because, and, and I did this when we were talking earlier too, is you talk about it as conceptual, right? So you're already implicitly invoking 
a conceptual change model to some degree, right? You're like, oh, it's an interesting concept. And okay, that's fair. I'm not, I'm not trying to drag you. What I'm trying to do is say, what I would say is I would differentiate between the rhetorical purpose of this article and then the, the conceptual thing that came out of it, right? So I think the rhetorical thing that he's trying to do here is he's trying to make an argument for a particular kind of um, knowing and expertise in teaching. Like he's trying to say, being a teacher is not just for failed, um, you know, people can't do science. It's not, um, it, it requires a rich, deep body of knowledge from his point of view that underlies those practices. So I think that's the thing that you and I agree with. I think the tricky bit is then that gets turned into a concept, right? And this concept is pedagogical content knowledge. And what happens for the next 35 years is that people spend a lot of time trying to increasingly quote unquote, better define what pedagogical Mm -hmm. content knowledge is. Like we're going to take this thing and atomize it. We're going to break it into smaller and smaller chunks that represent all the different aspects of pedagogical content knowledge that are embedded in that concept. And that's where all those models come from is this attempt Mm -hmm. to like take this concept and break it into lots of sub concepts that are all related to each other. Um, And most of that for the purpose of being able to write research articles about it. Right. I mean, if, if we're being a little bit cynical about that. So um, I think it's, so do you think that, that, Okay, I'll I'll play devil's advocate here. Okay, do you think that's do. that? And even though I'm, you know, I I I agree with you, but I, I feel like it, someone needs to be the you know the opposite perspective, right? An alternative perspective. Yeah. Is do you think that's really the intent of these folks who you know do PCK research is just to do to publish articles? I mean, do you really think um, that's the? Int- well, I, I don't know. That's a tricky thing. I mean, I think. I don't want to say everybody who does PCK research is, is like this sort of cynical. Cause I don't believe that there are lots of good people who do scholarship in this area um, and, and are thoughtful and, and are great teacher science teacher educators and all that. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, you know, denigrate a whole group of folks. What I am saying is um, functionally that has, is what has happened, right. Is that this has been about like trying to, chunk this thing into smaller and smaller chunks. And the question I think that's worth asking is, um, you know, cause you, you talked about its influence on teacher education and lots of other areas, teacher evaluation, um, you know, what, what, what are the unintended consequences of that? What right. has happened as a result of this attempt to not just say, Oh, okay. Pedagogical content knowledge. This, this is an indication that knowing um, how to teach is not simply knowing your science. Well, or knowing a bunch of sort of mechanical things about teaching, like drawing on the, on the chalkboard slash whiteboard or whatever. Like there's this other thing that in your Venn diagram is the overlapping of pedagogy and content. Um, So, but I think uh, it's, you know, I I think, I think they're motivated to. So while Schulman's created these boxes, of you know three boxes and you know you know overlapping circles or whatever you want to call them whatever there's all sorts of ways yeah but i think that you know what people who do this kind of research are trying to understand what is in the bin and what are the things that you know describe the bin right like Mm -hmm. because like saying that pedagogical content knowledge exists is one thing but trying to understand how that 
like what does it mean to be a successful teacher? What ped- pedagogical content knowledge is necessary to be a successful teacher? You know, and so that's the I think that's the thing that guides their research. I don't think it's or you know what what subject matter is necessary for to be a successful physics teacher to be a successful chemistry teacher and what do chemistry teachers need to know to be successful i think that's the motivation um because i think you know show me just puts creates the boxes i'm not uh, underst- okay, understand okay yeah, yeah i'm 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 not necessarily you know, taking that side, I'm saying, I'm trying to put myself in the perspective of a PCK researcher and saying, I, and I, but I, I will say that it has sucked the air out of the room for a lot of, especially in technology integration, because if we're, I, I won't jump into the TPAC stuff. Yeah. Um, we could save that for another episode. Um, but, but I think that if you're going to do research in technology integration, you have to, you almost have to do TPAC research. You know, because it's the guiding, it's the dominant framework, paradigm. right? And it's a dominant paradigm. And it's it has sucked all of the air out of the room that almost like if you were to go to like one of the like site, which is one of the big, you know, uh, technology uh, in education, technology integration mm-hmm. conferences, it just did TPAC, just search for the TPAC articles like the and this is technology pedagogical content knowledge. We'll, we'll we'll just put a pin in that and save it for a later episode. Um, but that in itself, you would come across like hundreds and hundreds of articles. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but I think again, the the motivation for that is how how do teachers what knowledge base this, do teachers need to have in order to be able to use technology successfully or teach successfully or teach their content successfully. I think that's right. really what so, so what, yeah, I mean, I think the tricky thing is though, and, and I, I, I think we've talked about this before. So um, Ron Gray, uh, Dave Stroop and myself wrote an article about, um, about pre-service teacher learning. And it had a, it had a, in it embedded in it. And there are other people who have had good response. I mean, John Setledge has a, a really nice article about pedagogical content knowledge and it's sort of, problematic nature. Um, so I think there are, there are voices out there that you, you can look into this stuff. But the, the reason I bring up that article is because I think the challenge is, um, well, my question is, taking pedagogical content knowledge apart into all these little pieces and then creating measures, because that's almost always what researchers do, right? They create some sort of measure for this thing. So if I'm going to, if I'm going to figure out what it is, I want to have a measure and a measure is usually some sort of test of pedagogical content knowledge, right? So the one question is going back to our, our talk about, you know, different theoretical frameworks is, well, what does a test of pedagogical content content knowledge tell you about practice? Because you're not looking at practice. You're just saying, I'm going to go measure it over here and tell you this kid has this much pedagogical content knowledge. And now they have that much pedagogical content knowledge. So it went up, right? So that's, that's one thing. And, and the other thing is um, this atomization has led to, um, to, to, positioning pre-service teachers in deficit ways, right? And this is what our article was mostly about, um, is the relationship between this theoretical framework and the way that you position people. If you, if you create all these different kinds of knowledge that are subcategories of content knowledge, then usually what you say at the end of the article is, people need more of this thing, whatever this thing is that you've identified. And by doing that, you've essentially said like pre-service teachers don't know much 
about teaching. You've positioned them in this deficit way. So, so I think that's a, a potential real problem to this is, is that if, if you define teacher knowledge as this, this abstracted construct of pedagogical content, not content knowledge, which can be measured with using these measures that are, that are only mediating between uh, them and practice, right. Or knowing and practice, um, and then you say, well, they don't have much of it. Well, it's, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's really helping us move forward as a field to say like, okay, we know all these different things that pre-service teachers don't know. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I'm not sure that that, that really is building us towards something. Now, you know, again, to go back to this idea of like, I'm not trying to drag everybody who does this research. I mean, in the same way that, that, there is a trajectory to scholarship, right? It's, you know, older, older ideas are prerequisites for newer ideas in, in many cases. So, so if pedagogical content knowledge and all of its, all of that research base hadn't come along, we might not be where we are today, but that, that also means that, um, you know, we also have to think, is there a time at which something has run its course and it's time to think about different ways of understanding it. Right. I mean, we can talk about physics, you know, we can talk about chemistry in the same way, right? Like phlogiston, sure. the classic, right. You know, models of models of uh, combustion and burning, right. You, you know, when there are models that, that no longer help us understand the problem we're trying to understand anymore, maybe it's time to move on. Yeah. It's, it's definitely not practice-based right? It's only knowledge-based. Um, yeah. It doesn't really talk at all about the things that are happening in classrooms. Um, it all talks about like what the teacher possesses, like they're in terms yeah. of their knowledge exactly. base. And, yeah. and it's very cognitive perspective, cognitivist. And you're, you're right that it set off like lots of measures that, you know, focused on deficit or ways to promote growth, right? In other areas, like, Hey, if we did this sort of intervention, then it caused growth in this area. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that maybe some of your, um, some of your argument is, is really the qualitative research versus quantitative research. I mean, cause mm -hmm. quantitative research lends itself to looking for differences, statistical differences that, mm -hmm. you know, that one thing is going to be better than another. And that what we have is all of these powerful statistical methods, right? To be able to tease out or to show the deficits and to show the growths. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that, well, well, I agree that it's absolutely, you know, a cognitive perspective and it's deficit, de definitely deficit uh, minded. Uh, I think that it's also, we could apply some of those same, you know, concerns to uh, quantitative research in general, right? Because I think it's, well, they're, they're intertwined, right? So it's hard, sure. it's hard to say exactly that or, or they're orthogonal. I don't know what the right characterization of them is, right? Like you, you can do research on pre-service or teacher learning that is not PCK or not cognitive, but is quantitative. I'm not saying that there's a large amount of that work being done, but I'm sure. saying there, those things are not a hundred percent one-to-one relationships, right? So I think, um, the, but what, what I will say is I agree with your earlier point about like pedagogical content knowledge is not, is a conceptual, um, therefore cognitive way of viewing teacher expertise. And it is not practice-based. It is not no. sociocultural. It is not any of the, you know, it's not of that. It's, it, it, it's lineage is not that those models. So, um, so it's, it is 
clearly deeply grounded in um in cognitive conceptualizations of knowing and, and yeah and expertise. i and and i would even say that the pedagogical knowledge right that they're that that shulman is presenting is sort of like he doesn't he doesn't unpack it for us right mm-hmm. he doesn't say what he thinks is good pedagogical knowledge right he just says that this is something and i would think that over the last 40 years 30 years that our understanding of what is good pedagogy has certainly changed and we have a research base to show that mm-hmm. right so while this construct is stuck around what we would say is is the construct or what is represented by good pedagogical knowledge certainly has evolved. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, um, the interesting thing is like one of the consequences is of, of this article and is that teaching has become increasingly discipline-based, right? Right. So, or teacher education has become increasingly discipline-based. So it used to be very common that faculty in colleges of education would be teacher educators and not what we all, most all of us are now, whether we're in elementary or secondary is we have some discipline specific nature to our work. So I am a science teacher educator. I don't teach generic teaching classes. Um, I don't teach about how to teach. Now, some of that has morphed into, um, you know, things around, say, uh, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion sorts of courses or other sort of justice and equity focused pedagogies, which are typically more general. They're not subject specific. And those things, those kinds of courses are increasingly multicultural courses in, in some institutions, right? So those kinds of courses, foundations of education courses sometimes, but those usually don't have a lot to do with teaching. They're more about like the social and political foundations of education. They're not about like, how do you teach? So, you know, there aren't really in most programs, non-content based teaching courses anymore, right? Like even in elementary, you have your, you have your, your uh, ELA course, your math course, your science course, and your social studies course. Like they don't, they don't have like a teaching elementary school course. That's not a thing. So, um, and, and I think at least part of this is, is the result of this pedagogical content knowledge movement. Um, And, and a lot of that has shifted all of our focus onto the idea that teaching is always subject specific. So I think that's, that's an interesting consequence of these articles too, is there is a sense that now people don't think of teaching as something that, you know, and you said this too, that is content independent. So things like, you know, courses about, uh, you know, anti-racist teaching, um, those courses are essentially content, not specific, right? They're content general, um, so though that's one of the few places where that kind of stuff still appears or is increasingly appearing in teacher education. Well, I, I think that, and I'm going to say this, even though I know that it has, um, it's loaded, Ooh. but I think that it's, it's that we all want to be unicorns, right? We all want to be unicorns and that, you know, my teaching, my content is unique. And I think there's some argument that we can make that that's the case, um, that teaching science is different than teaching math. And teaching, but there's a lot of cross-section, a lot of intersection across the, the different content areas that I think 
we most often cite the differences across our disciplines than looking for the commonalities. And so, you know, I think that we, we like to point out the, the differences more than embracing the similarities. And I think that, you know, we've over the last, you know, 46 episodes, we have people who are listening to this who are not science people mm-hmm. um, who are reaching out and saying, you know what, I found some value in this, even though I'm, you know, a math teacher, or even though I'm an art teacher or whatever, that they're finding some value here. And even though we, we spend a lot of time talking specifically about science teaching, there's lots of things that we talk about here that can be applied to lots of other content areas. And I think we miss those opportunities when we, you know, recognize the differences more than the similarities. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think like an interesting thing, you know, just structurally here at Penn State, when I arrived in 2004, there was a a CNI course, right? So there was a general pedagogy course. Um, So we, so we, talked about our individual methods courses in secondary as the ex ed courses. So like SciEd, math ed, mm-hmm. et cetera. But there was a CNI course that was taken by all students and was all different disciplinary areas mixed together. And it was a general pedagogy course um, in, but it's gone. It's, it's died. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it lasted, I think maybe five years after I arrived and, you know, by 2009, 2010, that course was gone and, and it, it had just been absorbed into the, into the general curriculum. And I think that that is reflective of a general trajectory. And, and I do miss that, right? I, it wasn't interesting because those folks who were doing those courses, the individual methods courses, we met together with the person who taught the general pedagogy course. And we talked about it. We talked about the integrations. We talked about assignments that would cut across those courses and how to think about integrating the ideas from these general teaching courses into our individual courses. So, yeah, I agree. I think, I think that has been one consequence of this is that um, folks talk less across these boundaries, right? Like the, the science teacher educators now pretty much go to NARST or ASTE, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're not going to as often necessarily AERA where they're talking with other teacher educators and going to math um, or, you know, uh, ELA or whatever other right. teacher education sessions where they might learn about how other people are thinking about. It. So, yeah, I think that's, that's uh, too bad too. That's another consequence. So, so we have in our secondary program, we have um, a handful of classes that are sort of general. Um, we have a general assessment class. We have a, uh, some special ed classes. We have a content literacy class. Um, but what we've done is we don't cross-mingle the students. They're general, but we teach them disciplinary-wise. So we break mm. them up so the only social studies students are in one section only science students are in another section and and there might be a little cross-pollination but not much um and i teach one of those i teach the assessment class uh and i will say that the students come in going okay this isn't important because it's not one of my you know content classes it's not one of my content methods classes so obviously it must not be that important and so there's i won't say all students come in with that perspective i think that i have a lot Mm -hmm. of students who come in hungry to learn about the craft and art and research of teaching. Um, But then we have others who just come in going, okay, this isn't important because it's not really about teaching my content area. It's about this other stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And, and that's the missed opportunities there too. Yeah, I agree. Well, maybe that's a, a sort of good place to stop for this and, and think about like, okay, well, we're probably going to have to have a couple episodes on this. Cause right. as you said, we didn't get into the sort of, um, well, I don't want to call the it. spawn. I'm tempted the, to call it metastasization of well, I think, PCK, I think it's, but it's the spawn of PCK, right? Yeah, I think it's, it's the, it's, it's all of the things that uh, PCK has, you know, created the right. industry. We could talk a little bit about the industry. Yeah. And, and this both that the atomization, the breaking apart of pedagogical content knowledge into lots of pieces to create models, and also the layering on of new concepts that were not originally included, at least from right. those authors' point of view in PCK, that they want, they think are important things that need to be included. So there was both the, you know, the internal examination of it and the external layering onto it that we could talk about um, and how, how this thing has grown. Um, I mean, probably exponentially is not, not an unreasonable way to describe it. No. How it has grown exponentially since, since Shulman first sort of characterized it. Yeah. I, I think that'd be a, a, a good next episode or next episodes to, to, to take a look at some of those things. Cause I think that yeah. we could talk about the assessments. We could talk about the other models that have created from this. I mean, you yeah. know, like, yeah, I came across one that in the beginning, uh, before the show about like one that was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And there's a ton of those types of spawn, the spawn of PCK. Yeah. I think that's probably the next episode or so. Yeah. So yeah. Joyce, let's talk about Joyce. Joyce. I think you, I think you have one, you have one uh, ready to go. So I'm anxious to share. I'm anxious. I want you to to do that. So recently on and not like, uh, we had the release of Black Widow. So after a delay of a, probably a year, if not more, uh, Marvel released Black Widow. And you know that I'm a huge uh, comic book nerd. Do know and, that. Yeah. And so we were away when it came out. Um, and so I bought the premiere access so that I would be able to watch it um, with my family. And so while... Uh, we were at we were at the, actually at the beach on vacation, and so we gathered the, our family and some other folks that we're with, and we all watched it together. And I I'm not going to give you any spoilers, so this is going to be a spoiler free re- review. Um, if you're familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, um, this movie takes place. It's a it takes place between Civil War. This is Captain America: Civil War and Avengers Infinity War. So there's a time period in there in which Black Widow is kind of like the lot of the Avengers are in jail or on the run. She is one of these people that's on the run. And so this is what she does while she's on the run. Um, and I think it's the, the important thing to, to remember is, you know, I won't give you any, anything away about the movie, but it, the design of this movie is that it's a vehicle for her as a standalone movie. Um, and it's a James Bond, Jason Bourne, Mission Impossible type of movie. She's a spy. She's a spy and assassin. And that's her in the comic books. That's what she's been in the Avengers. And that's what this movie is. It's a spy movie. It's not a superhero movie as much as it is a James Bond movie. And if you go in expecting that then you're not going to be disappointed if you're expecting you know i don't know iron man to fly in or if you expect you know thor to come in with a hammer or anything like that 
then I think you're, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're coming into this going, okay, I want to see Black Widow and the, and the skill set she brings as a spy and as an assassin, and which is what James Bond would do, or which mm-hmm. is what Jason Bourne would do, mm-hmm. or which is what you know, the Mission Impossible folks would do. Those types of movies are uh, the narrative style is different than you know our classic MCU superhero movies. Um, is it is it a perfect movie? There are things that I have absolute problems with. I think that David Harbor, who plays uh, the uh, the one main character, he plays like kind of the dad figure in this. Uh, his 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 accent is all over the place. <laughs> It's all over the place. Like there's sometimes where it's Russian, sometimes it's something else. And it's like, who knows what this guy's doing? Um, So it's a little bit, it's a little clunky in parts, but I, I'm going to go see it in the theaters um, probably uh, sometime this week. Uh, It is great. It is great. If you're a fan, you're going to be a fan of this movie and two big thumbs up. It's a joy. Two big thumbs up. And and I didn't do any spoilers there. That was a spoiler free. No, that was very nice. And and you framed it out for us in, in a lovely way so that we, so we, we can come in with the right expectations absolutely, and, and give it a chance as a film. Sure. So I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. All right. What about um, you, my friend? Uh, well, what I have been watching, which I think is behind the times, um, but I have been watching as a result of one of my friends saying to me, like greatest greatest shows ever on television number one sopranos number two breaking bad and then he said this is his number three show ever on television okay Um, and that is peaky blinders oh so So, good so uh so i have been uh full disclosure i i um my family for various reasons is is not in my home with me so i'm alone for a while uh and as a result i'm i'm I've found something that I'm just going to watch myself and I'm not going to worry about to other people want to see it or not. So I have started down the Peaky Blinders rabbit hole or uh, whatever metaphor you want to use. And I have been very much enjoying it. It's bringing me joy. I mean, it's not in fairness, it's not really a joyful show. It is not. It is, uh, it is mostly uh, it's not it's not a mayor of East Ham level of bleak, but it's it's uh, it's not, you know, it's 1919 post-world war one industrial revolution england um like gang show uh it's it's uh rough sledding there's a lot of ptsd and drug abuse and um sexual violence and all sorts of stuff like that but um but the characters are really compelling it's got it's got you know the vibe of a lot of these shows right and putting it with Sopranos and Breaking Bad makes sense. There's this sort of, there's illicit, um, you know, there's an illicit business that's the core of the show um, and, uh, or businesses. And then these are the people who are involved in doing that. And they're sort of trying to negotiate uh, uh, life where some people want to sort of be legitimate. Other people are perfectly happy being illegitimate and, um, and there's a lot of money and, you know, power and, you know, it's the sort of stuff you would expect from this kind of show, but so and, far and complicated protagonist, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, so, I mean, that's Tony Soprano. Yep. That's, you know, what's the breaking bad guy. You know? uh, yeah. I just said it and now it's gone. Yeah. yeah well, that guy, yeah. I, I'm not a breaking bad guy, but I, uh, Peaky Blinders. I loved it. Yeah. How, how far along are you? Uh, just about season? halfway through the first season. So I'm not even close oh. to Yeah. I mean, I know there's 
30 episodes and I have, I've just scratched you, the surface. Every season is great. Um, and I'll say one of the really great things about it is how the seasons, I won't give you the, like the actual yeah. endings of seasons, but they, w- this is an interesting narrative style that they do is they wrap up the story and the cliffhanger is actually setting up the next season. So it's a new story. So mm. each season ends by saying, okay, we're going to end this chapter, but we're going to start with chapter two. Giving you a and glimpse the, of chapter uh, two. Right. And the end of season one is bananas. It is absolutely bananas. It is awesome. It is so awesome. Mm. Yeah, that's a great show. We, I've watched that series like twice. I think my wife has watched it three or four times. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's one of those... Yeah, uh, check it out. Peaky Blinders. Good, yeah. good recommendation. Yeah, definitely Thanks. joyful. Jo- uh, yeah. Something. It did. Oh, engaging. Go. We'll go with engaging. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's a, a good place for us to end after our less than joyful um, analysis of PCK. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't. Uh, it, it it certainly doesn't bring me joy as a concept. But but I will say not to circle back to this, but when, when this idea first was introduced to me, when I was in a teacher ed program in 1991, right. Um, I thought this was a brilliant idea, right? Like yeah. finally somebody has recognized that teaching is, is this slightly more nuanced thing at least than we've talked about before. So, um, and I think, uh, you know, as much as I sound like a, a poo pooer of PCK, yeah, uh, that's what you I, do. You poo poo. I do. I, usually, it's you that poo poos, but uh, <laughs> but in this case, uh, yeah. So as much as I am, I do understand the power of the notion that he's put forward here. And again, that's why I try to sort of say, let's separate his rhetorical point from from the concept that it spawned, right? Yeah. So, but so, we'll talk more PCK spawn next time. Yeah, and and for those of you who are like actually collecting on you know scott's dollar per pck and he hundreds hundreds to hundred hundred hundo yeah. there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of, of dollars uh, dollars in the swear jar and likely more to come so yeah. just yeah 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 so there he is so there it is so thanks for joining us yeah and we'll see you next time here in between in between see you then bye now